0: Hello and welcome to Never Press Snooze, the podcast which will give you an insight into the lives and minds of the most motivated and inspirational people I have the pleasure of knowing. I'm Tony Musgrave and this is Never Press Snooze. Hello and welcome to Never Press Snooze Season 2 Episode 5. I've got an amazing guest on here today, a guy I served in the finest squadron in the British Army with. We've had one already in Andy Dunn in Season 1. It felt appropriate to bring in uh, another former Two One Six Parachute Signal Squadron uh, member to season two. Welcome to the podcast, Paul Godonis. Thanks, mate. Good to be here. Absolute pleasure to have you on, mate. Um, so normally, what I do at the beginning, just intro why you're here, why you got the call from me to come on the show. So basically, uh, the whole podcast seasons are uh, designed around people that have inspired me or do inspire me. Hiring things so that I can share. I felt really fortunate to have met um, a number of individuals through my military career and then in, in the next one that um, I think I could pass their stories on to other people and they could provide inspiration. Um, you made that list, mate. Well done. <laughs> um, hope that counts as some form of feedback. But yeah, sorry. I mean, uh, I followed you. Um, uh, we worked together for for a number of years and then um, I followed your uh, rise to success in the corporate industry with um, with a lot of intrigue, uh, and I'll let you go into that and you did you know some amazing stuff in the corporate world and transferred those military skills that you'd learn as a as a soldier and then as an officer afterwards um, and I followed that um, with, with some intrigue, and I don't know if envy is the right word, but I was always very proud of how you'd uh, represented not only the former forces people, but also former squadron people. Um, being those ex- executive boardrooms and them environments, I was always extremely proud of Thank the you. way that you were doing that. Uh, we met for a beer in London one time with uh, with Andy Good. Uh, we got chatting about it, what he was doing. And then came the next bit that. Is truly remarkable as far as I'm concerned because anybody who gives up their personal time to work with charitable organisations, in my opinion, deserves the utmost respect. The work that you did or doing with React, the disaster response stuff, um, big hand, mate. Well done. Thanks. Super work. And I hope we can get into that today as well. 100%
1: mate. Really passionate about that.
0: And in between all that, you're a bit of a CrossFitter as well. So if that kind of migrates into the conversation, <laughs> I'm sure we can... Uh, we can uh, please you guys who are out there doing CrossFit, uh, exercising fast. We can give you a little bit of a uh, little bit of uh, a showtime on that as well. So, let's hand the mic over to you, mate. That's enough of my voice. Uh, give us an intro. Who you are what it is you do, where you come from, and we'll see where it leads us for the next hour or so. Cool. Um, yeah. Uh, so, absolute
1: pleasure to be here. Um, you know, following from Andy Dunn, what a legend of a bloke uh yeah, so, mm-hmm. some some literal big shoes to follow um so the uh yeah basically i southwest uh down in devon um son of a raw marine um and i was always going to join the military uh i didn't do particularly well at school i just wasn't really motivated by it um and so i, I did a few other bits and pieces before i joined the army Included being a photographer on a cruise ship, which is a random one. Um, what? It's a, it's How did a, you get that <laughs> I uh, right place, right time. I um, well, I left school at sixteen, basically, and I, I I knew I wanted to join the military, but I knew I wanted to do something else first, and I wasn't clear what I want, what exactly it was I wanted to do. Um, and so I, my grandfather's really into photography, so it kind of inspired me a bit. I went and did some work as a as a photographer, and then uh, I met this guy who had just come back from the cruise ships. He was raving about all the places he'd been around the world, and it just really kind of interested me. So I thought that sounds perfect. I could do that for a couple of years, and then and then join up. And so I applied for a company. At the time, uh, I was just about to turn nineteen, and. Um, I, uh, I basically applied, I went for the interview and at the end of it, he said, look, you've got all the right skills, but we don't employ anybody until they're 21. So come back in two years time. So I thought that's gotta be that, you know, game over. Uh, and at the time, as well as doing a bit of the photography work, I was working in a, um, freezer warehouse, stacking shelves (laughs) and, um, I was in this freezer warehouse and I got a call and it was the guy that had interviewed me and he said, look, um, can you be in Vancouver in five days time? Uh, I was like, pardon, (laughs) can you be in Vancouver in five days time, one of our photographers has just died of a peanut allergy, and you're the only guy on our books, so I was like, okay, grasp the opportunity, which is a theme that we'll we'll come back to, Um, grasp the opportunity, and five days later, I picked up a ship in Vancouver in Canada, and uh, I spent um, just over a year, basically. Uh, came back sort of after six months for a, a short period, but spent yeah, just 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 over a year away from home. Um,
0: That's uh, amazing.
1: Which, yeah, it was mental That's mate. Crazy. Went
0: to loads of places. Um, That's crazy. I know. Just went. Right, that just feels yeah. like just grab it. You know, your bags up in five days and get to Vancouver. Crack yeah. on. Isn't that amazing? Um, we
1: we did like the inside passage in Alaska, which takes you up to all the sort of fields and stuff in Alaska. Um, And then back down the uh, Western seaboard of the U S dropping in various places down through the Panama canal. And then we did a cruise that was basically from Fort Lauderdale in Florida, um, a bunch of Caribbean islands through the Panama canal up, up to Acapulco. And we had a two day turnaround in Acapulco and a two day turnaround in Fort Lauderdale being 19 years old. I couldn't drink. <laughs> I couldn't drink in uh, Fort Lauderdale. Um, and know like religious about carding people. Um, but then in Acapulco, uh, obviously Mexico, very different. So it was just like two days on the smash. And it was it was nuts. Absolutely nuts. But they eventually moved me, mate, to another ship. Uh, I got a phone call. And I said, look, we need we need you to move. You're going onto another ship. Um, you're picking it up in Europe. Um, but it's going to be doing a cruise around Europe. And basically, it did some pretty decent places. And then it ended up going from Rosyth in Scotland, um, up around the fields in Norway, up to the Arctic Circle to Spitsbergen, and then down to Iceland, then back to Rosyth in Scotland. And it was uh, the ship was like full of old people, and the crew were German and Scandinavian. They didn't really like the English. Whereas the ship I was on before was a lot younger passengers and the and the crew were Brits and Americans and it was a party and so basically I got to a point where I was like right that's it I'm done and um, we got back into the port in Recife and I just left the ship and um,
0: went back home to Devon and signed up to join the army. Wow! So <laughs> you was doing that for what over just over six months? Did you say you was doing that for? No, just long? just over a year. Oh um,
1: wow! And I had like a, you did six months on and then you had uh, sort of six weeks at home and then went back on again um so it's, it's interesting i wonder if actually if they hadn't moved me to the other ship i wonder if i would have uh still been
0: just don't eat peanuts whatever you do exactly, exactly. get rid of that but yes yeah, so, so so, yeah. i
1: joined the army uh i joined the army as um uh, in, as a soldier did the whole usual thing went to the recruiting office and um I was, my, my cousin was a uh, lance bombardier at the time in the artillery i was really keen to join the artillery or the engineers um and do five nine or two nine commando coming from a commando family my uncle was a commando um, my father was, you know, my dad was a war marine my, my uncle was a Royal marine um and so I, I was quite keen to do that um and i went to the recruiting office and got sold the usual thing no what you want to do is you want to join the Royal corps of signals and um you know they, you can be a technician you can go and get promoted quickly and you can do all the soldiering stuff and um you can do your commando course and you can you know you can do p company you can do any of that sort of stuff you can even go and do uh, you can even go and be an sas signaler so I, was, I heard all of that stuff and i was like wow that sounds amazing yeah. so i went and joined <laughs> the signals and uh, i did my <laughs> tech training and the uh, three div so, uh, So I was uh, terminating cables in a workshop and fixing power faults on a radio relay. And I was really bad at it. And I used to basically hit things with hammers and see if that would make it work. And if it didn't, I'd say, well, that's broken. Um, Get a new one. And and so I was really bad at that. But they obviously saw something in me. And a a guy, OC Squadron called Bert Appleton, who was an amazing bloke, um, Major Appleton, um, called me into his office one day and I thought I was in trouble. And uh, he said, have you thought about going for a commission? And so I uh, went off to Sandhurst and, um, you know, you know, the, the story from there, kind of, I was back going through that training again. And I was thinking about where it was I wanted to go. And uh, a guy called um, Ollie Halstead was the in charge of recruiting at the time. He was a company commander, so a major. And he said to me, look, I'll get you whatever posting you want if you come back. And, and looking at the postings that were available, I said, "I want to go to Two One Six Parachute Signal Squadron." And he, what he is a former Two One Six guy himself, so clearly he was like brilliant. Couldn't have said anything better. I'll make sure you get that posting, and that's where I went. I did another six years then, um, and then a, kind of another opportunity came up, uh, right place, right time. Uh, met somebody that was working at Inmarsat, that was looking for a business development manager. Went into the commercial world and I stayed at Inmarsat for just over 13 years, left back in December. Um, and you know, that basically takes us up to today where I left in December, jumped straight into, um, wanting to, as a trustee and volunteer for, for react, what used to be, um, team Rubicon UK. Um, but as a trustee and volunteer for react, Disaster Response, response was looking to do some work with them, focus on that for a bit, and then look at what I want to do next. And, uh, didn't quite realize how much things were going to kick off with COVID, um, so it was very busy for a period of time. And basically, today I'm, I'm doing some consulting work um, with a company called Code Associates, which looks at culture and and uh, and leadership. So that's that's basically where we are up to today. A potted history of Paul Veronix: along the way, got married, had three kids, did some CrossFit, uh, and a bunch of other stuff. Well,
0: wore a few pairs of short denim shorts along the way, and. Yeah, here we are. So, mate, mate, those, awesome. are the, uh, those are the
1: those are the alleyest shorts ever,
0: mate.
1: The uh, um, veteran owned. I love
0: I love a veteran owned brand. Um, but born uh, primitive. Uh, born, yeah, primitive. Is that what, born primitive. Yeah? yeah. 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 I'll check that, out, mate, and I'll uh, i get some tags up on there for it. I know you love a veteran owned beer, and uh, um, yeah, product in any mind. So yeah, definitely the. <laughs> Let's get it let's let's take it back a little bit then. So that Sanders bit, did you had, when that, that Major Appleton said to you, Paul, do you want to have a go at a commission? Had you ever come you know, has that ever crossed your mind before?
1: No, never.
0: Um and uh, I, you know, I I was set on I was actually
1: I was actually thinking at the time about um retrading because I wasn't enjoying being a tech and I'd had some conversations about uh retrading. Um, maybe even recap badging. I, I didn't really know where where I wanted to go, and I did the um, the Royal Signals Leadership Course at Blanford, uh, yeah. and I did that, and again got sort of picked up um, as potential to be an officer, and so uh, and so then it was just twice sort of someone saying to me, you know, you should you should give it a go, and I thought, well, okay, you know, actually, I. Some of the officers that I'd worked with were good, some of them were really bad, especially the troop commanders. Uh, and I, I honestly thought that I could make a difference, you know, I could do things differently. And, um, you, you, where you see things like people getting jiffed for weekend duties on a Friday and that sort of stuff, you know, used to really wind me up. And just some of the attitude of, of some of the officers, uh, and I thought I could be different, so why not give it a go and see see what happens and
0: so I went for it basically um, yeah what's it like I mean I know a few people that have done it um, yourself and some others that have been lucky enough or I say lucky that's the wrong word actually who have been talented or able enough and have got the potential to go down that route and and generally the the guys who have done it they make great officers, right because they've got they're in touch with their people aren't they that's the the bit It sounds like you're saying, you know, like getting those last minute jobs and it not being a skin off their nose because someone else is doing it. But yeah, you've been in one of the lads type of scenarios. So what type of pressures on someone who comes from a, you know, a non-commissioned environment and then takes themselves through that group? Because I don't want to be presumptuous in this by any stretch, but I imagine you had slightly different upbringing or slightly different background to some of the people you was now working with on a day to day basis yeah 100% um yeah you know it
1: it's uh, it it was it's an interesting experience and in some ways i was very disappointed um because even even though some of the some of the officers that you worked with you, you you questioned you know you you questioned some of their decisions but you thought i've always thought to myself you've been through sanders you must have earned your commission um so yeah, you know, I I, I would obviously respect that. Um, and when you go, th- having gone through Sandhurst, you know there there were definitely some people that got through the course purely by the the skin of their teeth. You know, holding on um, for dear life, and they make it through. And and I don't think, in my naivety back then, I don't I didn't that kind of that that annoyed me. I didn't think it was right. Um, I thought people should earn that commission, that right to lead. And uh, in my opinion, not all of them did. And yeah, you know, I, I had some. I worked with some really great people. One of whom has actually been on your podcast, Dean Witten. Um, yeah. So Dean and I were in the same platoon. He was he was fantastic. You know, he was a, a great a great officer cadet and another person who'd been a soldier before yeah. before going to Sandhurst. Um, but there were other guys as well, right? That had no previous military experience. That really grafted and worked very hard. Alex Neem, who's another good guy, and I ended up in the Fusiliers. Adam Wilson, who's still in the parachute regiment. Um, you know, really good guys who worked hard at things and, and grafted. But there were some that definitely they would um, that skive to survive type mentality, <laughs> which yeah. sometimes you kind of you can understand, but in other cases you shouldn't be right um and so it, but at, at the same time you know there there is a numbers game to it right they need to get people through to sure. fill the positions and so that's what i realized later on when i was later training recruits myself as in basic training rather than officer training that you might want to you might think that some people don't deserve to get through but to a certain extent you you have to get people through
0: yeah it, I mean, there's always been that balance, hasn't there? With that, that it, it, it is difficult. You're always going to have, I suppose, a wide spectrum of people with, you know, with what level they're they're working at, and then lower ones. I, I wonder sometimes if, and this is how it's felt when I've been in, you know, corporals' positions, sergeants' positions, and you get a troop commander. You know, you can generally recognise the ones who have scraped through, let's say, um, yeah. and then it kind of feels like they think, well, just let them get out to their working unit and they'll either figure it out themselves, they'll either get found out, maybe get some shit over that off the lads, or, or it'll be the making of them. Because I'll be, I'll be sure that, you know, even when I went through training myself, I, I don't think I was, you know, the peck soldier by any stretch. I think I still had a lot of learning to do on the ground when I actually got out to my first unit. So I wonder if they think, you know, once they're through this there's opportunity for him to develop. Yeah, in the real in the world.
1: Absolutely, I think there's a, there's an element, there's definitely an element to that. But it was a great experience, right? And at the time, you, um, you perhaps you don't realise uh, what a great experience it really is. Um, but and it's like anything. It's like anything. Whether it's whether it's uh, whether it's exercise, whether you're on a bike or you're doing CrossFit or you're just lifting weights or whatever else you get out of it what you put in and um, the largely anyway. And, and I think that with Sanders, you know, it's the same sort of thing. I, I'd learned a lot there and it's put me in really good stead for the corporate world later on. Um and it's just, just simple things that the way you hold yourself, the way you, even when you're not confident about something, you can bluff your way to a, to a certain extent you can be confident you you can you go out your way to find solutions for problems. Um, you know you don't you don't sit back and just sort of say oh well I don't know how, what to do here and so I'll just wait for someone else to tell me. You go and find a way to solve a problem, and all of those things definitely put me in a a, a position that meant that later on I was able to be an executive in a in a corporate organisation without anywhere near the same level of experience as um, some of the people that were working for me and and certainly some of the people that I was sitting around a boardroom with.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I love that story. I, I mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast, I absolutely love the fact, and I know you've, you used the word bluff there, and I think you probably been a little bit harsh on yourself, mate, if you say bluff, but the ability to, um, to migrate to that environment and, and to be able to stand tall in that environment. When I watched some of the stuff you were doing on LinkedIn and the fact that you were in that environment, I just loved it. And I hope we can touch on some of that later because I'm interested to see how voice, uh, you know, how, how non-commissioned to commission to corporate world really does translate with those those skills. You, you, you ended up posted to, you said they're a training unit, but I'm not going to bother with that bit, if you don't mind. I'm going to go yeah. straight into... The bit about being posted to the finest squadron in the British Army, uh, yeah. we all want to hear about, that, mate. And I'm sure there'll be a load of people on the that listen to the podcast from the squadron. So let's just big that place up and and give that place some uh, some airtime, mate. So um, yeah. you posted into the squadron. Where did that go from there?
1: Well, I, I turned up and uh, I um, I had a bit of like an Achilles issue and hadn't perhaps prepared as well as uh, I could have done. And um I, I mean, I've never been like a great runner. Uh I've always, but I've always been able to sort of hold on, if you like. Um and uh I turned up and I, I wanted to do P Company, right? And I wasn't gonna fail it because I come from a family of commandos and they would never would have lived it down if I'd failed P Company. Um <laughs> so it was a do-or it was a do-or-die type thing for me. And um I turned up and I met a guy who I'm still in touch with and I still I still see as a, a good friend and someone I've got a lot of respect for. Uh, in neil fraser the the oc squadron at the time and uh i i, I can't wait i marched into the to, to major fraser's office to neil fraser's office and he said to me um he said right you get two jolly courses in your time here um don't come and ask me for any others no adventure training nothing like that you get p company in your jumps course and that's it <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> that's like your jolly courses and um and he said, and you know, if you uh, if you fail, and then you know, we're gonna we're gonna have to have a, a, a serious conversation about your future. Uh, and he basically told me, so I expect you to to work hard and play hard. Um, you don't have to be the best at everything, but you have to try. You have to try 100% at everything. And those those things really really stuck with me. And Neil was a, a great guy to work for. Very demanding, very demanding, but I like that and I respect it. And so know, yeah, it worked out quite well. So what year was that you arrived at the squadron? Uh it was 2000 yeah the beginning of 2001. Um yeah so,
0: 2001
1: yeah Chris Drew was the RSN, great bloke. Um Des Eldridge was my 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 troop staff sergeant another great bloke and I had you yeah. know people like people like Robbo Teeth Robertson um as a, yeah. as one of my troop uh, one of my troop screws another awesome guy russ sharp um it was just like a whole cast of really really good people russ welburn um yeah yeah lo- loads of great loads of real characters and so yeah i was, I was really privileged ca- to we have
0: we have to be really careful who we do and don't name in these because know when um when you say about jock or there um, he didn't get a mention in the, in the first one, things. So I think. So I wanted to make sure we got him in this second one because I love that bloke, absolutely top bloke. Um, yeah, mate. Yeah. I'm I, went to... I was... when, when... Go on, sorry, you go. I I had a uh, there was no um,
1: no accommodation at one point, Not, uh, no space for for some of the full screws and uh, troop commanders. So They were like um, doing up some of the accommodation, and I got put in a um, in a flat in Hythe in Colchester. And Robbo was my neighbour, <laughs> and uh, we got we definitely got close then. And uh, I met my wife actually whilst, whilst I was in that flat. Um, and uh, I used to come home and Emily packed the flat sometimes. And we were at the top of a bunch of stairs, and it could be like close to midnight, like late at night. And We walk up walk up the stairs, and the door just burst open as soon as we touched foot on the on the top landing. You're right, boss. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Robbo, have you been standing at that people waiting for us?
0: <laughs> uh, yeah yeah, top, He's, yeah, absolutely top last really hard on these podcasts the one we've done it was so hard you literally just want to start listing names of people who have had an impact but I think it's yeah. safe to say there's very few people that don't have an impact on you when you work in a squadron that's as energised and as as you know rampant as that one was at the time we we was on the you went down to Crowborough for your pre didn't you we was on the same pre i think down in, That's in right. so That's right, yeah. yeah yeah i think um yeah I, I my p company story is an absolute nightmare of a story cuz you you guys went up to p company didn't you did you yeah. this is not a loaded question did you do the foot and mouth course Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Okay. So, so what (laughs) happened?
1: (laughs) So, first of all, I got um. We finished out at Crowborough, and uh, yeah, I I remember being hanging out, and um, Mo Morris, who was running the training wing at the time, called called me into the training wing. He's like, he's like, boss, you're gonna fail. You're not you're not gonna pass it. Um he said you know look i think you're obviously been carrying an injury and you're not you're not quite ready for it yet and i was like no i've got to get it done because if i don't get it done then load of things will come up and there might be another might not be another chance to do it and if i go up i will pass and uh and so i went up and um I, it was a skin of my teeth thing because I, I definitely had a bit of achilles tendonitis and i had like yeah, you know, I was definitely not in a not in the best of shape, but I hung on and uh and I got the pass. And and I I think that more than anything, it was just a pure fact that I just hung on, right? It, it was pure skin of my teeth type. Um a pure determination more than anything else.
0: Yeah, I mean that we did that uh, pre power down in Crowe, didn't we, with Mar Morris and a few others. I remember that yeah running up stupid hill on that camp just constantly yeah. running up on that hill yeah. <laughs> we then we got back to the squadron um i was at like uh two things at the time in york got back to the squadron i don't know if you remember this story i remember it well because of the impact it had on me um so they they made an, an error with our medicals i don't know if you remember that and we ended up having the medicals on the saturday morning rather than the friday afternoon so everybody um, that had obviously was at the squadron was okay because they lived there, but for myself and a few others, Stevie Aswell was another one. We was all yeah. from from outside units, so um, we we had to stay an extra night in that shit old camp across the road that we were staying in where Preparo was. Yeah, and we went to the in the morning, and everybody was lined up outside, and we we're sitting there for ages, and then this doctor comes in, and he's clearly pissed off because he's had to come in on a Saturday morning for a bunch of skinheads who are now going to go up to katrick and, you know, smash. And, um, yeah, we ended up um, having all these medicals, and he failed my medical. And I'd passed pre power at the time, and everything was fine. And he failed my medical based on a, uh, a crucial ligament um, operation, and injury I'd had, wow. like, five, six years earlier. So you lot all went to Patrick to pass P-Company. And I'd pass yeah. pre like, what the fuck's going on here? Like, that's yeah. it. So Out. it was quite a long old story for me because then you guys was there and I managed to get back to the squadron probably le- just less than a year. But you guys ended up doing that foot and mouth period that was on because this is the third... It ends up being the third pre-para that I'm involved in. The first one, we went to Catrick and it was closed. Me and Stevie Aswell arrived at Catrick on the... Um, Sunday evening, and they won't let us into camp because foot and happened. And then the yeah. course gets more. Morris then calls us back to the squadron to say we've got to do another pre pack later. That's when we join you guys. But we joined you a few days later down in Crowborough rather than um, the initial BFT and stuff. So he let yeah. us have two days extra. Then I end up failing the medical, and then me and Lol Ellis, who also failed no. the medical, end up. RHA in Oldershaw on the very next course. We basically went back-to-back back, wow. um, for nearly to end up at Catrick. But I have... I, I believe things happen for a reason. Yeah. And the reason I didn't... I know that I wasn't injured, but I wasn't in the best state. Right. I had some blisters and bad admin and all that. But I think <laughs> that foot and mouth would have creamed me. I don't think I'd have made that through. That was... Uh, the, the guys get some absolute shit but doing a 20 miler around camp just makes oh that is sick
1: we did it on the roads um, we did it on the roads rather than in, around, just around camp we're out, we're, yeah. it was a lot of road stuff and a lot of track based uh, but it, you know it was a it was it was a thrashing and I just remember certain periods of it where I just thought oh, man I'm I'm going to break it and then I'd just picture going home and telling my dad that I'd failed P company and I was like nope nope definitely not keep going <laughs> yeah. And they, I, was, I was number 13 and um and uh so the uh they went through the numbers and it was like number nine failed and you know, you have to sort of turn to your right and march around the back and form a separate squad and it was like number nine failed number ten fail number 11 fail number 12 fail and i was like oh, bollocks, here we go turn, turn to the right march off number 13 pass and i was like <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> i think cool. great team. is a great feeling mate and it and I'm very proud of the fact that I served with the squadron and that you know I got my wings and stuff and I was airborne and it and it is the mentality um is definitely something that stuck with me and I've done my best always to try and um you know be the best I can be to try and really still still earn my place to stand with those people um yeah. And and be airborne, right? Whether that's in business or whatever. I've always tried I've always tried my best to be the to, to do the best that I can, to be the best that I can, to, you know, to really go for it as as a squadron would say.
0: I I completely agree. I mean, it's still, you know, it, I, I can I literally can think of faces. I remember Dickie um who was in the tech workshops at the time, the sergeant, he was on my pre power when I finally made it back to the squadron after having that whole saga that had gone on, I end up walking into the squadron by on a Friday night and he come over to me and said, I do, mate, congratulations. Do you know what? When you didn't come back after that peak, because he didn't know that I didn't get there, he just assumed I'd gone. When you didn't come back, I thought you was never coming back here. And (laughs) that was like, you know, just little things that people say to you, you know. know, I thought you'd fail. You'd, You'd decided never to give it another shot. And that would have been a waste, you know, and 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 you look round, and I can remember looking round that, that squadron bar and thinking, this is an awesome group of blokes to be hanging around with. We've got the same problems that every other military unit's got. It's no, it's no different to that. But there isn't a different there's there's a difference in the mentality. And then I'm gonna ask you a few questions about that because I know you wrote a little blog about it recently and about mm. that. But that I I and I I completely resonate with what you it can fool you a little bit. That that's how real life is. And once yeah. i had been to a few units, and they were pre- they were okay. Like you know, I won't give them too much stick. But when I got there, you know, there you you had to be on your A game every day. And I love that 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 little bit of pressure being in there puts on you because you got to perform. And and you're saying you've took that on, and and I have definitely took that on in my uh, civilian civilian life, my civilian career in mean, everything I do. I still yeah. try to live that ethos of being, of being airborne. That is massively important to me.
1: Yeah, you know, and it, you're right. It's um, it's something that that goes back to culture, right? And that is the the, the culture thing, which I think is very important. Um, it, it's a having an identity and a set of beliefs and behaviours that are the way people are, whether they are. Whether they're downtown or whether they're uh, on leave or whether they're whatever it is they're doing, that is the way that you should that you should be who you should be. Um, It's not a nine to five thing, and um, that for me definitely stuck with me for a long time. And uh, and like you say, you know, it's not it wasn't always great. There was there were some times there I remember in particular, uh, yeah, bits and pieces in Iraq the way that some things were done that I didn't agree with. And um, we won't go too into that in too much detail, but so just just the way that some some things were done in were, were not in my mind by that airborne ethos, and you know that that ethos of um, what everyone thinks in Sibby Street, which is quite interesting, is that as a leader you can just tell someone to do something and it gets done, and it doesn't work like that. You know, you've got to you've still got to earn people's respect, and you of course you can order people to do things. But that doesn't get you very far in uh, in in your career or in your relationship with people that you might have to rely on um, for your life at some point. And so you, know, you have to live that example, and you have to manage things in the in a in the right kind of way. And that it taught me to to know when to to listen to people, um, listen to their input, but then still own the decision, if you like, not to defer that responsibility or accountability to, to someone else but to own it and um the the times that working with people that you know like carl weaver who is the rsm that uh, yeah. um, towards the end of my time great bloke right and in on paper as a as a as a lieutenant i'm higher ranking than him but bloody hell that guy's got serious experience and um that, that you have to respect and you have to you know, listen to, and so I put a lot of time in trying to listen to people and take on advice, and and um, and then apply it in in my own way. And and that's another thing that stuck with me throughout um, throughout my career, whether whether that's you know, military or or, com- or the commercial world. Listen to people, seek feedback, seek input from people with more experience than you. Don't try and be the the best in the room that everything know who's better and pull the team together and use those skills of other people to to get the most out of the team and that's one of the biggest things that I learned from from the squadron
0: yeah another name you drop in there Carl Weaver yeah he was the badge weren't he, when we was out in Iraq as well uh, yeah. 2003 that was and then when we come back he he left a little bit yeah. after that was the end of his his career wasn't it he was a absolute amazing um, badge to have and and you're right, you know, so much experience there. Been with the squadron on a number of occasions as well. So mm. sort of, you know, I say sort of, he definitely knew how that place um how that place worked. But I think, you know, and I hope he you know if he ever listens to this, I hope he doesn't mind me saying it felt like he moved with the times as well. You know, he yeah. adapted his styles and he adapted his approach to things for an army that was, or a squadron that was working in 2003 with different uh, challenges and different things to face, as opposed to what it probably faced in 1996 or or prior to that. I don't know what his previous um, tours of the squadron were. So, and I think that that for me, that that longevity, those people, you know, and we can name some more as we go along. Your yeah. your your bombers, your Neil uh, yeah. Marshall. There's, there's a number of these people who adapted their style and. And, and certainly, you know, their experiences were to get into those roles like the badge, the, the MTO positions are, um, you know, these are these are blokes that you guys coming out of Sandhurst, uh, you're in the best hands, basically.
1: Yeah, and there's there's another thing, actually, that um, I'll link back to the point I said earlier around one of the reasons why – why I thought that going for a commission was going to be right for me, that I could make a difference and that, you know, those sort of weekend duties and things that I could avoid those sorts of things. And one of the things that I learned and I had a remember conversation with, um, with the badge about this with Carl, was that sometimes you can't, you can't avoid those things, right? Someone goes sick or whatever else there is a, there is a weekend duty that comes up and someone's got to get it. And, and I remember, um, I remember quite clearly the conversation, um, with Carl where uh, I think I might have been a little bit like, oh, this is out of order. And he said, well, what do you what do you propose? Now, how are we gonna how are we gonna do this differently? You know, you have you have to make a hard decision and somebody's got to get it. And it's not about it's not about trying to stop those things from happening, but it's about the way you deal with it. It's about the way that you get that message across and the way you handle it to to so you take some of the sting out of it if you like. And you know, so whoever whoever takes that duty you know whether it's if it it could be a punishment or it could be a favor that someone does that you make sure gets paid back but you know there's there's ways to handle some of those hard decisions and that that again sort of is another lesson that stuck with me in terms of sometimes you can't avoid some of those things that and people aren't going to like you for it but you don't necessarily have to be liked if in that particular moment a a hard decision has got to be made you've got to make that decision and actually it's just the way that you make it and the way you message it and the way you communicate it that matters more than anything else.
0: That is a. <laughs> that's making me laugh because I had a very similar situation. So we're out in Afghanistan, Dogsy Barker at home injured. I take over his role well as the um, sergeant of the MT at the time, looking after the guys in there. And at the time, we've got Chris Coates, who was another amazing badge, and Dougie Craig's out there as well, who I think was the. Um, the QM at the time, Um, another guy that I worked with previously as well, who I massively respected um, and had done serious tours of the squadron. And we had a very similar thing where we had somebody lined up to go home. They were leaving the operation. Uh, They were going back to the UK. Um, For good, they wouldn't have to come back out. And the decision had to be reversed. And it was my responsibility to deliver that message. Um, yes. and the same, the same thing you're, you're saying there I said it's not fair how can we do this we need to stop these decisions happening and Chris and Dougie sat me down at the time I don't know if they remember I how, how was raging at the time but once they managed to sit me down and have a, you know, a leadership conversation with me as opposed to just arguing with me which it was my I had the problem there they basically said the exact same thing this, this message has to be delivered but how you deliver that Is going to stand you instead to be a senior NCO within to be able to continue making decisions. And that was a a real turning point for me. I don't think I recognized it all at that time, but when I look back and reflect on that, I did deliver that message and you can imagine what that message went down like. And I said, you know, Uh, unfortunately, you know, you're unable to leave the operation. That that's not just a weekend guard duty or a, a shit job you know we're talking about someone who is fuck out of there and uh um, yeah. what i was i tried to come up with a thousand solutions i would stay longer you know i was prepared to stay another month to cover that role but that just wasn't going to work like that because i had my replacement come in. that was the worst bit yeah i was gone; they were staying yeah so that was really and and that delivery of that message, and that's exactly what they said to me. I learned a lot that day about myself, but I also learned a lot for the future that you're right can't always be popular in those decisions. But sometimes no. you have to own the decision for the for the greater good of the operation.
1: Yeah, I I I, I took that lesson, and um, you know there were times where in the corporate world running a running a business unit and um a, a a team of 80 odd people and um 130 million dollars us dollars worth of revenue and 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 there were times where because of the economic climate or whatever else because of problems with the business or whatever there had to be uh, you know there had to be redundancies made there had to be a reduction in headcount because if you don't then the the business will continue to suffer and everyone everyone loses the job because the company folds and so, you know, you have to make some of those really hard decisions sometimes. And th- that, I found that really difficult, you know, to, to make a decision about whether or not someone keeps a job. Um, but at, at the same time, you've got to,
0: you've,
1: if you've tried everything and you've done everything you can to try and keep the business going in the right direction, saving costs and whatever else, growing revenues, it's still not working. Sometimes those things have to be done. And it, again, it comes down to how you manage it. I'm not saying I've got it right all the time, but what I'm saying is, in the back of my mind, I was always trying to think about the uh, you know, the, the individuals, the people involved, and the good of the whole of the team rather than uh, rather than anything else. And it's you know there, there there are difficult decisions that have got to be made in every walk of life, and um, it's often the way that you make it rather than whether you make it.
0: Yeah, people are pretty savvy aren't they like they understand those things it's it's when you know the time when I was going to tell the guy you know what I think one of them said to me well what 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 are you going to say to him play it through with us what you said yeah and if I'd have said to him I'd have absolutely done myself no favours whatsoever you know not standing by the decision I if it was up to me mate I would never let you go it's you know that stuff you know it just doesn't ring true and they can see through that straight away. You you're doing yourself and them no favors by by hiding behind or, or some kind of masquerade. And I remember thinking, I'm gonna go and tell him and I'm gonna tell him that it's not my fault because I kind of wanted to remove myself from the equation. Yeah. Um <laughs> and I know that sounds pretty shit, but you know, I was pretty inexperienced at the time and I felt like that would be the best way for me and him still to keep, you know, a bit of a relationship and still to remain as popular as I could but the reality yeah. was I wasn't going to remain popular out of that either if I went over and said look mate if it were up to me I wouldn't do this but you're going to have to stay he's going to he isn't going to he's not going to see past the decision anyway no so it was much exactly. more around, you know involving no. and I just involved him in the reasons why and sat down and didn't break it to him in a you know in a savage way and yeah and you know i look back on that and think wow there's a million things i would have done differently but you 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 got to learn from them haven't you you have mate
1: yeah like all of all of life is a is a big learning experience and i i i enjoy that it's uh, i like the learning i like develop I like the development opportunities and with things um but sometimes it can be a difficult lesson right it's not it's not uh, it's not always e- easy and leadership is a it's a huge privilege. It is a huge privilege to lead people. But at, at the same time, it, it can be a very lonely place to be and it can be uh, it can be difficult. You have to make difficult decisions and people are not always gonna like it, but you know, that's the that's why you uh, that's why you have that position, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm I'm completely on board with you there. I think the bit that resonates the, the most is is the privilege, you know, and yeah. I think you, you, you were privileged, and I, I don't mean priv. You had the privilege. That's probably a better way of phrasing it. You had the privilege of not only being in the finest squadron in the British Army, but leading <laughs> some of the guys in there um, yeah. as well. That must have been an awesome time, mate. That you look back on really fondly. I do, mate, and it's it. It's something that as you as you say, you do. Um,
1: you do then measure things against it and. It, it never quite steps up and I know that I know that you do look at, quite often look at things with rose-tinted spectacles, you know, when you look back on time, and I think that there were people in that squadron um, who were turds, um, yeah. they totally were, but the majority of people um, wanted to be there, had pushed themselves through an arduous course to be there, and that, or they wanted to push themselves through that course to be there, and therefore that puts them in a very different position they, they, you have a, a group of people that are motivated to be the best they can and to be a part of something that is bigger than themselves and you don't always find that in uh in in the in civilian world and, and actually you know as a as a nice segue um that's one of the biggest things that i have have found and i like about volunteering and about react yeah um what what was team rubicon uk in that those people don't have to be there um and now there are some people in in the group that are there for you know the, the 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 image and the kudos and the instagram shares and the virtue signaling and all that no doubt but the majority of people and certainly those that put themselves forward that volunteer repeatedly for tasks um blow my mind uh, you yeah, know they are they are the sorts of people that i want to be around that I want to work with that i want to uh, that I want to grow personally around because anybody that's willing to to step out of their comfort zone and do something like that in my mind um you know it it has that same mentality as being a part of that airborne group you know they have that same something different about them that makes them want to push themselves out of their comfort zone
0: I completely agree i think. You know, I don't want to sound too cheesy about it, but there's a sense of purpose that, that runs through those types Absolutely. of organisations. If we look at 216 as an organisation, you know, there's a sense of purpose. There's a reason for being there. Um, it yeah. does lead nicely. I just want to just give us a little, just a few minutes, really, on that corporate environment. And, you know, you as with a yeah. big, big organisation, mate. I don't want to just skip that section, if that's all right. No. Um, yeah, sure. It, it was How um so opportunity to come along mate so basically i i was
1: uh i had gone from from um the parachute signal squadron to training recruits and then from training recruits i pretty much knew that i wanted to to at some point um leave i don't i wasn't going to do a full career was, uh married we'd had a, a first um child was on the way and so you know basically i knew i wanted to do something different and i thought right I was offered a chance to go and be an instructor at Sandhurst. Great for your career and all that sort of stuff. Um, but at that point I yeah you know, I wasn't in the right space to to do it i was I was checked not checked out, but I knew that I wanted to leave at some point and so I was, I was I was thinking about that. and um so I got a post into two three eight London Signal Squadron, um, which did a mixture of kind of tasks from supporting ceremonial duties to electronic countermeasures. Um, for VIPs around London, um, bikes with ECM kit in, basically, um, to uh, incident response teams that were set up to act as a liaison between the civil authorities and the military. So if there's a terrorist incident or a natural disaster or whatever else, and the military assets need to be deployed on the ground, um, whether that's bomb disposal or uh, just manpower to do labouring-type tasks or um, SF groups or whatever it may be, they, there was not a huge amount of um, communication between the military assets and the civil authorities. And so they wanted to set up these, these liaison teams um, to, to act between the two. And in that process, um, I was, we looked at buying some InMarsat equipment, so Satcom's kit. And um, so i got a bit of an understanding of InMarsat and, you know, kind of had used the kit in Iraq and Afghanistan or whatever else. So I had a bit of an exposure to it. And then at a networking evening, um, someone had wrote Inmarsat on a whiteboard and they spelt it wrong. And so I went up and corrected the spelling with the guy. And uh, and he said, I oh, you know a bit about Inmarsat. I said, yeah, use the kit in Afghanistan and Iraq and purchase some um, for a team that I'm with at the moment. And he said, well, go and speak to that lady over there. She's looking for a business development manager. And I had no clue about what <laughs> business development manager was, right? I thought sales was about picking up a phone and cold calling people um and so i didn't want to be in sales i thought i was going to be a project manager or whatever else the kind of cliched roles yeah. that people think that they they're, they're they're set for when they leave the military and uh so i went and spoke to this amazing lady called lizzie greenwood who had been um one of the first uh females or the first female to in the in the navy um on a ship as an air traffic controller um and basically she was doing business development. She was looking for a business development person. They wanted somebody who had ideally been in the army and had used the kit. And so right place, right time, a couple of interviews, got the job. Um, and so that was how I I transitioned. And for me, it was a fairly easy transition because I was working with, um, I, was, I was selling to the military, both in the UK and overseas. So there was a lot of military people in the team that I was um I was a part of and so it was an easy transition and I I worked quite a bit with a a couple of guys that uh, were uh, um, former Blah blokes, 264, SAS Signal Squadron guys, um, Simon Davies and Sean Barry. Really good blokes actually for Blah people, believe it or not.
0: Um, (laughs) uh, uh, I worked
1: with them them quite a lot and it it was a really easy transition. Very quickly got kind of bored of business development and so moved into a more sales-focused role, account management, um, channel sales type stuff, and uh, then a, a team of account managers. And it was, it was a really interesting role because we, we worked in aviation, maritime um, enterprise, which covered media, oil and gas, mining, transport, uh, and, and all, of, all of the sectors, basically. So we, we covered everything. And, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a really interesting job, a lot of travelling, a lot of of, uh, challenges and you know pushed to make numbers and to to drive sales but it was about relationships more than anything else and talking to people and helping to solve problems and growing their business and so I liked that right it was about that solving problems and it was about um, trying to help people find solutions to the issues they had and how we could employ our technology to basically um, help them do that and so Um, I then kind of grew and grew with that with that role started managing bigger teams and then as the organization got bigger through acquisition um, we split into business units that were focused on particular verticals so maritime aviation government and the enterprise commercial land business and I found myself actually um, running part of the sales team for the maritime business which was the the biggest business by far and it was really challenging times but kind of progressed through that um, ended up being the, the chief of staff effectively. Um, so the kind of problem solver firefighter for the president of the maritime business unit. Um, and then eventually through that, through, through that I did an MBA Go, going back to the whole um, bluffing your ticket type thing, a bit of imposter syndrome. What Where that came from for me is that I I, I kind of knew through the experience, the short term time experience I had, how what I wanted to do with certain things, but I didn't know how to articulate that. I didn't know how to tell someone or to pitch it, to put it into the right structures and talk about the numbers in such a way that I could convince people about my decisions. And so that's why I went, wanted to do an MBA to get me the the experience of um, uh, understanding the terminology being able to build business cases and and justification for decisions but also to get get the qualification because I didn't have a degree <coughs> and um, so I did that and then I went on to become join the enterprise team and be the president of the enterprise business unit and I think it was in that in that transition period where I was about 8 years 7 or 8 years out into the commercial world that I realized that <coughs> something wasn't quite sitting right with me. Um, I was working for a bunch of people that, uh, or a bunch of state shareholders, I was making money for shareholders who I didn't know. And um, they didn't know me and they were making decent money out of it. And I wasn't, and I was lacking that sense of purpose that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. And and that was where I started to look for something else. Mm. And that basically was um was a guy I worked with called Del Ashley, uh, who's a um, former bootneck um, special forces communicator, SBS signals guy. Really, really great bloke. Uh, and we were talking about um, what we could do to try and try and find that sense of purpose because he had some of the same issues. And the earthquake in Nepal happened at the same time. And so Del basically said, "Look, let's grab some satcoms kit." And uh, took another guy um, with him, um, a guy, another another two one six guy, although not airborne, uh, called John Smith six six. Um,
0: yeah. And so the two
1: the two of them jumped on a plane with a bunch of uh, satcoms kit, and uh, off they went to to Nepal. And they set up the kit and they provided service for people out there in the uh, in the aftermath of the earthquake. And they worked with aid agencies and media organizations. And they both came back buzzing. Saying how it's you know the best thing they've done since uh, they would left the army, and you know could we formalise that and find a way to do it, and the uh, the company supported me in that in that um, in that intent to try and find a way to formalise us supporting disasters, and then when the um, Haiti uh, earthquake happened, um, we looked to send people out again. Um, we were told that if you turn up at the airport, you won't be allowed to leave the airport and you have to fly back because you're not affiliated with a disaster response organisation. Um, and so that was when basically we, we went looking for a way to formalise it and found Team Rubicon UK, what is now React Disaster Response. So that that kind of commercial bit was... Um, it, it was... I was doing really well. I was getting the promotions and I was doing doing well in things, but I still didn't have that sense of purpose that we've talked about. And and that's where um, React came
0: in. I love your honesty there, mate, about losing that. Because I think your sense of purpose in the transition period is one that, you know, you probably forced. I know how mine felt is that the purpose is to get a job, provide for your family and make sure you secure that. And then if you lose that sense of purpose, which I have done in, in my early parts, I, I don't feel like that now, but you just kind of don't know where, I didn't know where to go. I was like, yeah. why am I here? And then you, I don't know about you, maybe yours was, you said that was eight years in, but after a couple of years in, I contemplated go back, do I go back to the yes. army? Because they had a sense of purpose there. Did that did that ever cross your mind, joining back up? I um.
1: I realised that, you know, I was on good money and um i i wanted to i could see that if i if i stuck at it for a number of years i could i could make good money for the family and give us financial stability and so i hadn't really thought about joining up full-time but i did look at things like the honorable artillery company which was just down the road and yeah just down the road from the office and so I, i looked at that and i was considering that um and I was considering a number of other things as well, you know, what could I do? Um, but that but but finding the disaster response stuff, you know, it was the it was the best of that military world, the community, the sense of purpose, without the hierarchical bullshit and um everything that can come along with being in the army again.
0: Yeah, I mean, like I think you mentioned Rose Tinted Glasses earlier, you know, when I'm sitting yeah. Two years out thinking I should join back up and then I chat to a few lads, like, Yeah, but what about this? What about this? What about when this happens? You think, Oh bollocks, yeah, I don't I don't need to be getting back into that. Especially when yeah. you've come out to the civilian world and you know, yeah, we have we all have to cope with our own organizational bureaucracies and the 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 nuances that go with that. But in terms of the the bullshit bit it just is slightly different, isn't it? Um yeah. the military versus civilian career so yeah but I mean desperate times call for desperate measures right so when you're missing something you're you're prepared I was prepared to go back I mean I had a um, a job offer back to go back to 7RHA when they were in you know when they'd moved to Colchester and uh, I was really contemplating doing that because there was a point where I just didn't feel like the transition was ever going to happen you know, I, and and I'm talking probably about two years to make that transition, maybe even yeah. a little bit longer. I just didn't didn't feel right. I, I, I am, you know, so glad I stuck it out and didn't go back. But um because I, I think I would have felt like I'd not done what what I set out to do, which was to establish myself in a civilian role. I'd have felt like I'd run run back to your ex girlfriend almost if you'd have gone back. Yeah. So um, it was a little bit, um, yeah. When that when that purpose is lacking, you know, as with anything, if something's missing in your relationship, in your life, in your work life, you, you kind of start to search elsewhere, and and that's yeah. when Team Rubicon is landed in front of you and and re, reignites that passion. And I've seen that ever since, you know, in whatever forms it is now. But I've seen how you talk about that, and when. You know when someone's got a bit of a glint in their eye, or when they say something, you know they're passionate about it. That's how I feel when we have spoken previously about Team Rubicon. So, yeah. what happened then? So, all happened. You know, we, I am. I, um, so,
1: basically, Dell and I, um, the bootneck, and I, uh, we went down there to do the the induction course, um, to so that we could get a sense of the organisation, give it a bit of a sniff test see, uh, see what it was like. And, um, two so we went down there, we did the course and we both came back. Yeah. Absolutely buzzing, um, on the, uh, on, on the organization and wanting to be a, a part of it and, and sold it to the company as a, this could be a great corporate partnership. Um, we can use it as a model for retention. <clears throat> so we yep. can use it to develop people. So you get, you get people that you think are future leaders, but they don't have that experience send them down there, give them the, put them out of their comfort zone. They're not, although it is, although team Rubicon react now is predominantly a veteran based organization. It's not solely a veteran based organization. There's uh it's about 70%, I believe, um, veteran, and there's a lot of police and fire brigade in that as well. But yeah, they have some, some, uh, really hardcore, um, people that are a core part of the responder group that have had no military or emergency services responder type experience. And so, we put a number of our people through um, through that uh, through that process of becoming um, disaster responders. And some some great people at InMarsat went went and did it and became key to the to the deployment. But it, it's a, it's that again putting people outside of their comfort zone, giving them experiences to develop them personally and professionally in a non office type environment has it has a definite benefit. And there's a, there was a um, HR guy recruitment called Ben Catchpole who um, was quite quiet he'd been in the police for a little period of time but quite a, quite a quiet individual and we did there's a number of courses that you go through you do an induction and what they call a domestic operations course it's just a long weekend effectively and it trains you in the basics how to deal with flooding and the principles of um, disaster response that sort of stuff um, and then there's an international course where it's slightly longer there's a field-based element and so you, you, it's, you have like an exercise type scenario on Salisbury Plain where you move from different cereals, you do things, you sleep out overnight and there's a simulated earthquake, which actually happened in, in, in Indonesia, which meant they had to move at night. So like getting bugged out effectively in a military sense. Um, but it, it was more to say, look, you know, we work around, we work in earthquakes with earthquakes a lot. We work around um, a, a lot of a lot of areas where you might have to move in the middle of the night. And so it was to simulate that. And this guy. Um, being quite quiet in my experience of him absolutely came out of his shell smashed it to bits it was it was cold Uh, it was like late November on Salisbury Plain freezing cold and he didn't whinge or moan once and he came back from that in my in my eyes a much more positive and um, much more confident individual and uh and and i think that it, it for me that was one of the great benefits of putting people from or encouraging people from my team and from in my site in general to go and do some of those things is that they they really actually learned some skills and go, gave them some confidence that they can operate in some of those environments and so I, I my problem with it though at the time was that um i was part of this corporate executive team um and i i didn't have the time to go on any of the, the the deployments. So deployments would come up, and people would go um, overseas and do things. And every time something came up, I'd look at the calendar, and there'd be a big strategy meeting or um, a big review of performance or whatever else. I just couldn't, I couldn't get out of. I had that responsibility as the leader again. Um, to, to to be there, right, and to kind of represent my team. And so I never really got to go on a deployment, so that was a bit frustrating. Um, but I became a trustee, so I helped with fundraising, I helped with partnerships, uh, helped with recruitment and other bits and pieces. Um, and so I was getting a bit of that sense of purpose from that. Um, but also throughout the throughout that period, we started to uh, look at the sale of inmosat to a private equity consortium. And um, and so, basically, going through that process, like there was a point where I could see the deal closes with the private equity guys. New owners come in. All of our shares cash out. I've got some money then as a bit of a buffer to go and do something more dedicated um, with a disaster response organization. And um, and so, so basically, I I could see that coming over the horizon. And uh, and so it became something that I was almost started to fixate on and uh when the deal when the deal finally closed um and i basically said look okay you know this has been great but it's been 13 years i've been here a long time um i don't see myself being the next step up would have been the ceo and the ceo at the time you know rupert Pearson still a ceo now um to bring like a planet you know he's like one of the, one of the smartest people that i've ever met and i could never see myself following on from him so at the same period I was like you know what I actually need to develop myself I need to get more experience um and go and do different do go and do different things and so I resigned in December last year um it was a big decision because I, I felt I had a good team I had a lot of really good people in uh, in the organization and if, there was a part of me that felt like I was running away from what I knew was going to be a difficult period for them and but at the same time I, kn- I i knew it was the right thing for me for my family i had to, it was the right time for me to do something different and so so i resigned i left um, and i t- you know took some time out um spent time with the family and then covid hit and so that was obviously a point where you know i had intended on taking at least a good 6 months focus on Team Rubicon, knowing it was going to rebrand, knowing it was going to move away from the US organization um, and become its own entity. Um, And I'll go into that in a bit more detail in a minute. But knowing that that was going to happen, and that was coming, uh, I wanted to focus on that. And actually, if an operation then came up, obviously no one one ever wishes for a disaster, but if an operation come up, then I'd be there ready to deploy. Little did I know um, what was coming.
0: The, the biggest operation you are probably ever been home soil happens. Yeah. I certainly in the, so. in the, Yeah. Um, it, I think you make a good point there. No one wishes for an operation, but at some point you want to put those skills you've learned into a practical capacity and that's without those operations that opportunity doesn't arrive. You know, you had that chance in 2001, Afghanistan, 2003, yeah. in, in Iraq. you know, of course, we don't want those conflicts or those situations to happen, but you spend an awful lot of time training and becoming, uh, you know, at high states of readiness. That you do want to put them into practice at some point.
1: Yeah, my my cousin um, who who did a full career in in the uh, in the army in in the gunners and left as W one. He used to, he put it to me once um, in the best way I've heard, and he, and he said it, it if it's not that you necessarily want there to be conflict or you want there to be a disaster or whatever it may be in a, in a military or disastrous uh, disaster response scenario. Um, but it's like, if it doesn't happen, it's like being a car mechanic who never fixes a car. A car mechanic yeah. doesn't want your car to break down, but you know, it, it, it happens. And so for me, I am, I'm, 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 you never want those things to happen, but at the same time, You'd be a bit disappointed if you went through a whole career, a whole of in the military
0: or is a disaster responder and nothing ever happened. We never deployed. Um, and something does happen then in February, January, February time. When did this start to become a real thing on the radar for you guys? Because I know it stepped up towards March, April, May and it's still going now. I, I receive a lot of text messages about what support can be given. I know there was, I think it's probably gone, for me personally, what I registered for, which again, I was unable to, to meet some of the demands due to my current work schedule. Um, that yeah. feel that peak has happened. Um, yeah. I'll let you tell us whether they saw it.
1: Yeah. So, um, so basically, uh, the, the, it's quite, quite funny. There's, we went to, we went to Lanzarote on holiday, um, with the family back in the February half term. Um, we were quite smug at the time because we had five holidays booked for the year. Um And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, that's, uh, that's another that's story. That's the end of that story. Right? Yeah. We know how they're pumped up, mate. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Skiing didn't happen. Yeah. Some holidays were knocking it up anyway, mate, bigger things, but basically Rich Sharp, the CEO and uh General Sir Nick Parker, the chairman and I were talking quite a lot about different um roles. And uh, there was, when it, when things started to ramp up through March, there was um, a number of strategic liaison officers planned to deploy with various organisations um, into the Standing Joint Command, so into the MOD. Um, uh, Lizzie Starman, a uh, former logistics officer, uh, who is an absolute stalwart of um, of Team Rubicon React deployments, and a, and a total legend um Lizzie's quite often the first out the door into disaster zones as part of the recce team. So she was going into standing joint command and uh there was a, a guy called Honorati, um former submariner officer who was going into um the British Red Cross and what what is their voluntary coordinate uh volunteering community um uh partnership um and uh and then I was set up to go into the department for culture media and support uh, and sport into into government basically as the liaison officer there um but that, that never panned out um and so they, i was it looked like i was going to deploy looked like i had a role and i didn't have a role i was like oh man and then uh i got a phone call uh, can you be up in yorkshire um to stand in for for a week to two weeks as the regional liaison officer to work with the the military up there and with the local government and other voluntary organizations to to effectively find the um unmet needs the those things that weren't being r- resolved uh on the ground and then coordinate volunteers to go and meet some of those tasks and um so obviously I jumped at it I spoke to my wife and said look you know a week or two away um yeah everyone's locked down anyway uh I can I can add some value here and she was She's always been very supportive of me. So very lucky there. And so off, I, off I went up to Yorkshire, and it only ended up being a week. Um, and uh, it, it was a it was a frustrating period because it was more like business development. And um, in terms of pe- not many, although people had met Team Rubicon in some context um, as we were back then through the flooding that happened in the in the north they didn't quite understand where our position was in, in the group. And so there's a lot of business development stuff, not a lot of action. Um, I got a little bit frustrated with, with the way things were going, some of the interactions up there. I didn't handle some of that well myself to be fair. Um, but then they basically handed over to another guy, um, Andrew Bobbent and he took over for me in Yorkshire and I went down and took over London. Um, obviously much closer to where I live in Chelmsford and easier for me to make the link in there. And uh, and, based, and so really my job then was to um, work with a number of different organizations. so initially it was working with the military and they had these uh, um, JROs, um, uh, Joint Regional Liaison Officers who were basically looking at um, how the military can support the local authorities in, which goes back to that last job I did in the military. Um, how they can support them with various tasks and so how they can use military assets to perhaps move pp to help with testing centers or um a number of other things and uh, and where the military couldn't handle some of those tasks then um they would they would approach us and we would then work with the uh our volunteers and other volunteers to then go and fulfill some of those some of those duties so one of the one of the first tasks that came up was um, was body handling at the temporary mortuaries, and this yeah this goes back to <coughs> this goes back to the types of people that you work with. Nobody wants to be handling bodies, but people know that it's a task that needs to be done, and it needs to be done with professionalism and with respect. And the people that came forward um, to do a task that you know there's no social media pictures of you in a disaster response t-shirt um doing great things and being a hero there's no there's no telling the world about what it is you're doing it's a there's no virtue signal into it you are under the radar and you are doing really amazing things um without getting the without getting that kind of credit and pat on the back from from everybody for it so to me that task in particular really exemplified the types of volunteers that we get and the 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 mentality that they have of wanting to do good things of wanting to to help people um even when there's going to be no credit no no pat on the back for it (coughs) so
0: it's yeah it's the it's the ultimate level of service isn't it you know to be especially to be outside of that limelight as well yeah you know it's just to serve. They are, they are, you know. There's not as much of that that goes on in these days. And you know, I think because obviously we tell everybody about. It. It's funny. I was listening to a podcast this morning with um, um, General McChrystal and Simon Sinek, and they was talking about the exact same thing about people who serve but do it quietly. Yeah. Like it's the it's the ultimate sacrifice because they've given up probably the one thing that's available to them that's time. Generally, that's time they would, you know, be spending with their family or doing something that they want to do, and they've given up that time and they don't tell anybody about it, you know, or they may tell a few people down the pub or whatever, but you know, they, like you say, there's no big shout out about it. It's selfless service, and I think that it's just quite, it's just honourable and and a, and a beautiful thing to see when people do that. I, I saw a few of the squadron lads ended up doing it as well. Is that correct? Yeah. I think, I saw some pictures of ex-squadron lads who end up on that uh, that task as well. That that just made it feel even better that people had you know, they they gave up their time to do that.
1: Yeah, and I went and and, um, visited some of the people at some of the sites you know, a bit of a morale check make sure things are going well and if there's anything we can do to improve it and that sort of thing meeting some of those people was humbling Um, it takes a a different type of person And, and there, there's it's it's a challenging task as well because having the perspective of being a trustee as well and being responsible for um fundraising for the financial stability of the organization which is basically the role of a, of a trustee um you know that you need to have things that you can talk about right you need you need the photos you need the the stuff that you can um, share on social media to raise money, to get the interest, to recruit, and everything else. Um, but you also know that there are tasks that you know just need to get done quietly in the background. And so, a, good, a great person to talk to about about this stuff, mate, uh, I find a, a fascinating individual, is um, is Gaz Walsh from Sin Eater's Guild. Um, yeah. And you you look you look at the the ethos of Sin Eater's Guild and the way that he talks about service. That exemplifies these these types of tasks where the, the person quietly gets on with some with the things that are going on in the background, but they, but there are some tasks where you do need to tell the story as well. Um, and so we had we had I was really fortunate again to be in this position where um, I was meeting people doing amazing things and working with um, the food banks, for example. The, you know, the council staff in London. A lot of the things like food banks in London were run by repurposed council staff and so I met a, um, a team at a food bank in London and um, we just went in to see to have a conversation with them to see if there's anything we could do to help and you know, they they didn't have formal logistics or any kind of experience in food bank in, 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 in running a food bank or running anything like a logistics hub like that um, from a HR background and, and but they were doing an amazing job right they were Going out of their way, they were grafting, they were putting in all the hours, seven days a week, um, to really push themselves to do the best for their communities, and that was another humbling thing. You know, you turn up as a as a disaster responder, and they're like, oh, they think you do something amazing, um, and 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 then but then you meet these people, and they're the ones that are doing the amazing thing because they they're not they've just when something bad has happened, they've just stepped up and jumped in for their community and so meeting some of those people was a real privilege as well um but we we worked with a number of uh other organizations and groups and another one that sticks out to me and again doing that seeking to be that front line seeking the problems finding the issues and one of the things that really stuck in my mind is i had this gut feeling that there were problems out there that we just weren't seeing and you can sit back and think that the silence is a is a positive thing um you know there's no one no one's coming and shouting we need help so that's a positive thing or you can think that maybe they're not asking for help because they don't know that you've got the capability so i was sharing reports about what we were doing in other parts of the country and around london i was speaking to people in um in various positions telling them about the capabilities and you'd find things that would pop up, or you'd see, you'd seek stuff, and you'd find out um, things that were happening. One of the one of the great organisations I, I had the privilege to work with was the uh, the bike shed in London in Shoreditch.
0: Yeah, I saw, I saw some of that stuff you was doing with us as well. Yeah, and these
1: these were just um, Dutch and Vicky, the founders, basically just wanted to find a way to to help people to use their community to provide like a free courier service. And, um, you know, they ended up doing all sorts of tasks, delivering PPE to small um, to small uh, surgeries, delivering food to vulnerable people, um, uh, delivering oxygen tests to to basically understand if someone's uh, someone's oxygen levels were were right, which is a problem with COVID. You can be asymptomatic, um, not showing any symptoms, but your lung capacity can be degraded. And and it, it can be a silent killer. And so they were having, they were getting these tests out to people so they could test the oxygen levels um, that they that they had. And it no doubt would be saving lives because if it if it gave a reading that was um, that, that was in, within certain parameters, they knew they had to go to hospital to get checked out. They ended up delivering um, COVID test kits to NHS uh, members that we set that we set up and uh, with Imperial College. And so this was a react disaster response as we were at that point react disaster response and bike shared collaboration where working with a number of other organizations we would take the um, test kits to uh, to um nhs workers who were self-isolating to see if they actually had covid because if if they weren't if they didn't have covid then obviously they could go back to work, to <coughs> that work would yeah. ease, ease some of that burden on on the nhs and so um you know that these were all volunteers they weren't getting paid they were paying for the fuel and the mileage themselves and they were doing tasks all over the uk sometimes in relays from devon all the way up to scotland for example um so just meeting people like that mate it blows your mind it yeah. blows your mind how um how you see the 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 best of people some people you see the best of some people in crises like we, we we've seen recently um, and there are so many others, mate. That I could go through the different things that people were doing, feeding the NHS and whatever else. But yeah. it was a real, real privilege to be a part of that. Um,
0: yeah, I, I, I followed. I followed it, you know, throughout your whole thing when you went up to Yorkshire and I messaged you a couple of times, and we was talking about people's responses. I don't know if you remember in in mm. crisis. I, yeah. I actually used, used the phrase very. Um, frequently and you know you didn't say a great deal you just said something like listen mate you know as well as I do uh, crisis brings out the best and the worst in people yeah. and that really stuck with me because I wasn't looking for uh, a massive bit of text or some inspiring speech from you that I wanted I was asking you about situations that we find ourselves in and what's happening and, and you just said those few words and it, it just reassured me at the time that you know there is loads of people out there doing great stuff in this crisis. And and, and actually it is, yes, we are, of course, we're seeing minority, um, a minority of people or, or groups of people that are not doing their best, but yeah. a lot of people stepped up to the plate. 100%. You know, really have committed to this alongside organisations that are amazing like you know, Team Rubicon, and then and then react disaster response. I mean, you you you've talked a couple of times. There's a few a few trends really running through this entire podcast. But the the opportunities that have come knocking, you've you've taken them, absolutely taken everything I've seen you do from the day I met you on Prepara right through to where you are now, um, and you constantly are seeking feedback and asking for feedback from people in order to make better decisions. And that for me as a leader is probably the most amazing trait that you can have is that it's not, this show's not all about Paul Godonis. This show is not this one, but it's just not the Paul Godonis show. It's about, it's about everybody. And your job has been to facilitate and move things and massage it. And I just, Mate, it's, it's, it's just awesome to see how well you're doing and the, and the things that you're involved in.
1: I mean, that's what I love about what I'm doing right now um, with the consulting stuff with um, Code Associates uh, is about exactly that. It's about um, how you can help an organisation to get the most out, out of people. And it has to come from the top, right? It comes from the leadership. You, you build the right culture and you get the right people um, for, for what it is that you're trying to do. And uh, and and so and that's something that really clicked with me personally. I had this like epiphany where I realised that, you know, I'm I'm not a great salesman. I'm not a great anything that I've done. I've never been great at. But what where I've been successful, I've always done my best to bring people together, and and create an environment where they can do their do their best, do their best thing that they do, and that and that I think is the you know, the secret to why I've, I've kind of, I am where I am. Um, and it's, I, enjoy, I really enjoy that. You know, I like, I like seeing people grow and develop and that's, that's something that is it, something that's been positive for me. And I look to continue doing that for sure, mate, as part of React Disaster Response um, will always be, a, I think, a part of the key part of, of who I am.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm just listening, mate. I was I was literally mesmerised there a little bit by it. I think that's how I see you as a as an individual and as a leader. And that's not me saying you've not been great at any of those things. But what I have seen, and whenever I've worked, you know, with you or uh, you know around you at the time has always been, and I know if we grabbed on here, all of those people, your Des Eldridge's, the guys that you worked with, the Jock Robos, all of those people, Russ Welburn, you named a load at the beginning. I think they would say, if I asked them to describe you, that is exactly what they would say. They would say that you create a safe environment, Uh, an environment in which you can flourish and develop an environment that brings everybody together, knowing that, you know what, some of it's going to be a bit shit. You've never played it up. You never make it seem something. It's not, it's not, there's no, I'm sure there has been at times because you'll have had no choice, but there's no corporate bullshit that goes with it. It is what it is. We're realistic. Um, I'm pulling all of those people together to deliver something amazing. And, and I, Listen, mate, from, from my perspective, I want to just take this opportunity to say thank you for the work that you and everybody else in those disaster response teams has done during this COVID period. Because what I have seen, and, and I love the fact that you raised, there's a, a thousands of tasks that go under the radar that don't make it to the social media. I want to thank you, every single one of them, uh, for all of the work that they've done during this COVID period that's kept people like, my grandparents my parents and and family members safe and 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 given you know nhs staff an opportunity to look after them so thanks mate i genuinely appreciate it
1: yeah 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 thanks for that mate it was um for me personally i spent most of it um at home doing stuff on a computer and conference calls and uh banging out crossfit in my uh, (laughs) my garage in my garage gym um so, so it wasn't really a burden for me but as you say, mate, there are a lot. There are a lot of cracking people out there that have done you know, a lot of uh, a lot of great things. And I'm not saying that I'm um I've, I've always made the right decisions, mate, because I haven't. I've I've made some absolute shockers in my in my time. But all you, all you can do is learn from them, right? All you can do is learn from them and try every every time to be to be better, a better version of yourself. And that's I think you know, another important thing for me.
0: Well, what's next for you, then, mate? Um... What, what what comes next as the, uh, as a disaster response? This is not me angling angling for any uh, information. Are you anticipating a you know another peak? Are you are you preparing yeah. for the the same again later on in the in older months of the year? Oh, that's hard to say, mate. It's really hard to say. Um, it, I
1: don't. It's not obviously not going to just go away. Um, but and and you know as an organisation. Um, we know that our first responsibility to in this is to do whatever we can to work with other organizations like the british red cross again there's a whole gr- another story there of um, some amazing people that get paid bugger all but do incredible things um choose to do incredible things when they could be working in the corporate world and there's, there's, a, there's a whole podcast mate about that sort of stuff but i am so being involved with those sorts of things it, it, is there is definitely key for me whether or not there'll be a um as big a deployment uh or peak or lockdown i don't know it certainly feels like there might be um but what i can say for sure is that whilst there are whilst there's a need for volunteers you know that disaster response will be there um and what i what i what you can see at the moment is that regional lockdown and the um where you see a a particular region being locked down we're ready to to jump in we've got people still now linked in with the, the voluntary community um linked in with local resilience forums with the military with local government um to be able to provide uh the support as it's needed and so um i'm i'm now i'm now sort of you know working on helping uh well, look, I'm now working, working with code associates. I'm now focused on that. Um, but if I can, if I can deploy on a task rather than a longer term, I did 105 days, um, as a regional liaison officer, pretty much working full time. Uh, I can't do that again. Um, but I can certainly do, you know, a week or two on a task, um, doing something else. And if I can, if I can make that work, then I'll, mate, I'll be there hundred percent. Um, and, and if, and if it's not that, if, if, covid goes away sooner rather than later which you know i hope it does um then my kit's packed and i'm ready to go on an international deployment for a tsunami or a hurricane or an earthquake or whatever it may be um again if i can make it fit
0: yeah and i love the fact that you're just you're available you you know you've you've committed to this as a cause it's uh it, it, it really is great to see, mate. I uh, I've taken up a most of your evening. I want to say thank you, mate. It's been it's been a real buzz to get back in touch with someone that I've worked with before, someone who I genuine genuinely respect, mate. And you know I love That's the 35. work that you do there. Um, I really appreciate it. And uh, I just I, like I I just touched on it slightly before. I think the thing that that strikes strikes me through here is that. You don't you don't tend to let opportunities go. You grasp them with both hands and, and you crack on with them and, and that that work ethic is, is awesome to see. Um you're moving into a a consulting world. Um and I I love you know I know I saw your blog the other day which I, I shared around on LinkedIn and I read it and I actually shared it with some of the people I work with and because I felt it could actually express or articulate some of the things I've been trying to say for for quite some yeah. time particularly around um you know the false sense of security that in the squadron where that infectious optimism is just present in like 95 percent of the people and you, you don't realize how how important that is in in achieving in achieving results i think what from my perspective what you're going to deliver to that corporate environment through the consultation stuff uh, the consulting stuff is is a no bullshit real-life examples of an absolutely awesome career right through from randomly ending on a ship in, in Vancouver right to today, mate, involved in disaster yeah. response. That's as random and as varied that your career can get. And the <laughs> fact that you're still learning now is is amazing, mate. I, I just want to say thank you for everything you do with the disaster response team. And thank you for taking the time out to come on the podcast this evening, mate. It means a lot to me. No, thanks, mate. And, uh, you know,
1: yeah, keep up the great work with the podcast because you know, it's all about education, right? And I learn things from listening to other people and I find podcasts are definitely something that gives you a lot of pause for thought and uh, insights and different perspectives that I find positive. So, yeah, cheers, buddy. No problem, mate.